0: Welcome to Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk. Nubian Tigers are a group of people who met at Princeton University and have continued to be friends throughout the decades. The COVID-19 pandemic and the civil demonstrations following the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd by the police motivated us to harness our life experiences and professional expertise and contribute our voices to the broader discussion of the conditions of life throughout Black America. My name is Michelle Jacobs, and I'm with my co-host, Ray Smaltz. Before we get to today's guest, I'll turn it over to Ray.
1: Thanks so much, Michelle. And for those of you listening for the first time, the acronym W-A-K-E, or WAKE, stands for Wisdom, Advice, Knowledge, and Engagement. And the UP is the abbreviation for Princeton University, only backwards. When the late civil rights icon and longtime congressman John Lewis was only 23 years old, He delivered an inspiring speech at the historic March on Washington in 1963 and punctuated the end of it with, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop and we will not and cannot be patient. This podcast aspires to wake up our listeners to some of the very same struggles within America today and across the globe. And Michelle, we're now less than two months away from what could be the most consequential presidential election in our lifetimes.
0: And because of that, today, Ray, we're going to be doing something different on our episode. We're actually going to have a series of panelists speaking on election related issues. So we hope you'll stay around for all three presentations, and there'll be a roundtable discussion amongst our panelists at the end.
1: We'd like to welcome to the show our first guest for this discussion, Mary Nelson. Mary was born, raised, and resides in St. Louis, Missouri. She graduated from Princeton University in 1977 with a degree in political philosophy, and later attended the University of Missouri School of Law for her JD. At the law school, she was classmates with Jay Nixon, who eventually would become the governor of Missouri from 2009 to 2017. Mary worked on Nixon's Democratic primary and general election campaigns, and then served in several key positions during his administration. She has been recognized by the St. Louis Black Bar Association as a legal legend, received the Women's Justice Award from Missouri Lawyers Weekly and the Order of the Coif from the University of Missouri Law School. And we're not talking about coiffure, we're talking about coif, Okay, (laughs) That's academic excellence, if you guys don't know. Welcome to the show, Mary.
2: Thanks so much, Ray. Good to be here.
1: So Mary, in reading your bio, you've obviously been a very committed public servant to the St. Louis community. And considering you could have made tons of money in the uh, private sector with any major law firm, Uh, at least that's what I've been told. So anyhow, what inspired you to remain so closely affiliated with Missouri's politics and the plight of the state's black and brown community?
2: You know, going to Princeton, you are practically indoctrinated on the principle of working in the community service in the nation's service in the service of humanity. And I'm certainly um, part of that movement and was really fortunate when I was there to have been exposed to people like Barbara Jordan, Shirley Chisholm, who spoke eloquently and very compellingly about taking what you've learned at Princeton and applying it to your community at home. So instead of staying on the East Coast I was very anxious to get back home so that I could try to do some good there.
1: Well, those are two ex- excellent role models to, uh, to pattern your career after. But later on, Mary, you were able to ride the, the wave, the Barack Obama wave, okay, into the office and administration of Jay Nixon. So what was it like being involved in his campaign? going around the state campaigning and being his liaison to the Black community. And how were you deployed by his campaign and his, his, his administration during your tenure with him?
2: Um, by the time that Jay recruited me for his uh, first term in office, I had sort of been around the block politically in St. Louis and at the state level, I had worked in economic development in the city of St. Louis. I had worked in two mayoral administrations in the city, and had also worked as general counsel and legislative director for the Missouri Speaker of the House, another classmate of mine. Um, So I sort of knew the lay of the land and what Jay wanted me to do, and I was sort of surprised at the role he wanted me to play was to be his director of boards and commissions. And in that role, you're essentially um, using the delegated authority of the governor to appoint people to state boards um, and commissions all over the state and in all kinds of areas, whether it's clean air commission or the, I don't know, State Fair, or, I mean, there are just hundreds and hundreds of different commissions. And I really saw it as an opportunity to mobilize a statewide volunteer pool, drawing not only on the political connections that Jay had, but on personal connections that I had, so that we could extend our footprint of influence all across the state and in every community in the state, including people of color.
0: So you um, can you tell us a little bit about what the challenges you faced um, working for Jay Nixon in terms of making relationships in the black community um, and how how did you go about establishing credibility for him and for yourself in the community?
2: Um, It was tricky quite frankly, because Jay had previously run for governor and was not well received by the black community. Um, he, as, in his capacity as attorney general, had been responsible for defending the, a big school desegregation case in the St. Louis public schools. And when that case when he finally had an opportunity to settle the case, because it went on for several years, um, the black community was not supportive of the settlement. Although black politicians had urged the case to settle, the community wasn't feeling it. And in fact, when he ran for governor at that time, they supported the Republican candidate instead of Jay. So he had to make up for that deficit and lack of confidence. Um, So there was a lot to be done in terms of selling him as somebody who cares about people of color in the state. Um, But at the same time, Jay being an outstate Missouri person, meaning coming from rural Missouri, he wanted to keep his foot firmly in that camp and not concede any of those votes. So it was difficult to get him to do both things really, to appease the rural people, but at the same time be a real progressive in communities of color. And you know, I pushed him into doing a number of things that were historic for the state. We did a lot, made a lot of firsts for the state of Missouri in terms of appointments to the bench and to boards and commissions, but he never really wanted to take credit for it. He never wanted to send out press releases talking about how this made history for African Americans, and so I felt kind of conflicted about that, but, you know, I wasn't the governor. I'm just a staff person.
0: Can you give us a couple of examples of the first uh, that you were responsible for appointing?
2: Sure. We put um, African-Americans onto so many different boards where they had never had any before, um, whether it was the State Fair Commission, the Cotton Growers Association, the Clean Water uh, Commission. Um, You know, black people don't really come to mind when you think about being interested in environmental issues, but things like clean water are very much issues for us and our communities. Those things are essential. And if you have a commission that's addressing clean water issues and not thinking about St. Louis or Kansas City, you're leaving out a huge part of the picture. And I wanted to make sure that we had a voice. And the governor was very accepting of those kinds of ideas. Um, But it was pretty exciting when you have the head of the architects and engineering board be a black man, you know, or you you have the uh, board of police commissioners be majority black in the city of St. Louis and beheaded up by a Black woman. It was exciting.
0: Now, in 2011, you were appointed to be an Administrative Hearing Commissioner, um, and you stayed in that position up until the time when police officer Darren Wilson murdered Michael Brown. If you can say, can you give us some sense of what was happening within the governor's uh, sphere of influence and what whether you had any ability to discuss the issue with government officials?
2: Yeah, I was getting ready to leave the Administrative Hearing Commission in August of 2014 when Michael Brown was killed. And if if you'll remember, there was a long period between the killing and when the county prosecutor came back with his decision not to seek an indictment. And during that period of time, that's when the community really got organized and really was pushing for some action. In that period of time, I spent a lot of time trying to lobby the governor to file a formal complaint against Darren Wilson for using excessive force and for acting inappropriately. Um, And through another one of his um, boards, which he made appointments to and actually controlled, he could have seen to it that regardless of any criminal action, that it was within the governor's control for Darren Wilson to be disciplined for his inappropriate use of force, and for him to lose his peace officer's license. He didn't do that. And I was very frustrated that I couldn't force his hand. I do understand his explanation, though, which was that having been a former prosecutor himself, he wants a chance for the prosecutor to do what he was going to do. So by the time it all worked out. I was already gone. I was at St. Louis Community College as its general counsel, and we took it from there. But you know, I think that Jay called me at one point and asked me about appointments to a task force that he was putting together. But beyond that, I really didn't have much input. And the, the sad thing is he didn't seek out input from any other African-Americans. And I was very, very frustrated for him that he didn't do better in understanding the issues and an appropriate response because I think he was on the short list to be considered as uh, Hillary Clinton's running mate on her ticket when she ran. And he went from being you know, the next big thing to being out of contention and consideration altogether. And you know, I thought it was sad and very unfortunate because he could have done a lot better.
0: As we look back on the events of uh, Ferguson now, you sort of wonder what where could we have been today if the governor had just taken that one step towards um, having some kind of accountability for Officer Wilson, like where would where we be today and would we be positioned better to handle some of the kinds of um, police activity that's going on today?
2: I totally agree. Um, certainly Mike Brown was not the first Black person to be killed by police, but in this age that we're in and with the focus, with you know everybody having video cameras, um, ready and to to film everything. I think it could have been important in setting a national precedent on an appropriate mm-hmm. and and proactive response, not just to a killing, but to the inequalities, the the injustice, the the things that a governor you would hope would care about beyond just another Black man did. Instead, you know, things really got out of hand with so much being focused on what kind of person Michael Brown was and whether he deserved it, you know, which I thought was totally unacceptable and very racist.
1: So Mary, out of that uh, tragic incident, How did the politics in the St. Louis community, as well as the state, change? Were there changes? Did it improve? Were there uh, people for the first time being elected to public office in the Ferguson community and then later on in other parts of the state?
2: Well, that's the good part of, of all of this. That's the silver lining that came out of this tragedy. Um, St. Louis, the St. Louis area has traditionally been extremely conservative. I mean, I think of all the cities that rioted during the 60s and 70s, St. Louis was never among those cities. Um, Our politics tends to be very old school, very democratic machine, all that. And so the change with the Michael Brown killing Really was that, you know, the cameras were focused on St. Louis for a sustained period of time. And young people came forward as the new activists. They found their voice. And because they were able to find their voice, older folks supported them and came forward. And it really snowballed into an opportunity for the community to understand what power they had. Not only did they oust the St. Louis County prosecutor who had failed to act to get an indictment against Darren Wilson and replace him with a a black man, but there were also mayors that were elected because of their activism. Um, National spokespeople like Brittany Packnett came out of that. Movement. I mean, I think that we set a pattern for the rest of the country to follow with regard to political empowerment that can come out of that kind of tragedy.
1: Well, here's the weird thing we've had multiple tragedies since, right, in those six years. Yeah. And so the country right now is at a position where how will people have to figure out ways in which to stop the Black vote, to suppress the Black vote. Have you? What have you seen in Missouri in terms of some of those uh, ways in which uh, the Black and Brown vote is going to be suppressed? And do you anticipate even uh, a worse uh, things being done uh, for this upcoming election?
2: It's truly a bad picture in Missouri. I mean, this is a time where all people who care anything about democracy need to rise up and start paying attention. This is a call to arms. It's a code red or a code black, if you will. This is important. Um, In Missouri, the state legislature, at the very last moment, at the end of the session, uh, passed a bill allowing mail-in ballots for the first time in the history of the state. What they didn't do was think through how does this thing of mail-in ballots work so as to allow people to comfortably vote. They didn't deal with that. So as a result, there's a lot of confusion in the state with regard to mail-in ballots versus absentee ballots because they tweaked the rule with regard to absentee ballots to allow certain people to vote absentee because you know, of COVID-19. Mail-in ballots have to be notarized and properly filled in. Not- so there are notarized. all these new, absolutely. So there are all these new rules around mail-in ballots. And so if there's no provision at all for the election authorities to notify a voter that they failed to fill out their ballot properly. Mm. So the odds are that their ballots can be discarded for something as simple as not sealing the envelope properly or not completely, you know, checking boxes or whatever. So there are lots of ways there that people will fail in their ability or their attempt to vote and it's it's frightening because you know so many people rely on facebook and social media for direction on on things as as important as voting unfortunately and i've seen a lot of information out there that does not reflect missouri law mm-hmm. and you know things like telling people to take their mail-in ballot and hand deliver it to the election board. Maybe that works in some other state. In the state of Missouri, a mail-in ballot must be returned by mail. If you try to deliver your mail-in ballot in person, it will be discarded. So when I every time I see stuff on social media, telling people don't trust the post office, take your ballot and deliver it yourself, it's just not gonna work for us It's going to result in a lot of invalidated ballots.
1: So Mary, before we let you go, now you have participated in voting, in the polling as a judge for many years. What is, your gonna, be, what is gonna be your role this year?
2: Well, not just as a judge, but also as a poll watcher and for the last, I'm gonna say four election cycles, I've been a part of the Democratic Party's voter protection project where we troubleshoot uh, voting issues. Um, I expect to be a part of that uh, cadre of attorneys again this year. And if not, I'm going to work at the polls as a poll worker. That, you know, Missouri is like many other states where most of the poll workers that are hired are senior citizens. And with COVID-19, there are a lot of people that don't feel comfortable to participate. And so there are going to be a lot of vacancies. Um, We badly need, well, nationally, we badly need poll workers. So if anybody has an opportunity to sign up to work, I know you get paid some, you know, some nominal fee, but it's important work that makes sure that everybody who's eligible gets to vote and that every vote is in fact counted.
0: Thank you so much, Mary. We're going to ask you to hang out a little bit to wait to the other panelists speak, and then hopefully you guys will have some uh, roundtable discussion amongst yourselves. So thanks so much. That was uh, fantastic, and hang in. Thank you.
1: That was terrific and I hope you'll join us for our next episode, episode two of this election special on Wake Up with Nubian Tigers talk podcast. We'd like to thank our guest, Mary Nelson, a lawyer and former director of boards and commissions for Democratic Governor Jay Nixon for the state of Missouri. Join us for our next episode where we will introduce Larry Hamm, a political activist and recent challenger to Cory Booker's Senate seat where we'll discuss more of the potential obstacles, disinformation, and impediments that could affect turnout and ballots of Black and brown communities during this upcoming 2020 presidential election. Michelle, I can't wait for our next podcast.
0: If you enjoyed what you heard today, follow us on our YouTube channel at Nubian Tigers Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nubian Tigers as one word. And of course, you can always check us out on our website, NubianTigersPodcast.com, where in addition to the podcast episodes, you can also find helpful resources to help you explore the subject of each podcast. Looking forward to sharing some wisdom with you next time. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up!